The parish likes to, to look at kind of the bigger picture. A priest is an altar priest. They just go, go, go. In the zeal full of Jesus Christ. There is compassion for poor people. And it has this beautiful historic church. Heaven coming down to earth. Thanks be to God. From the Rome of the West, this is the Catholic Gateway Podcast. Your audio gateway into the Archdiocese of St. Louis. On each episode of the Catholic Gateway Podcast, we'll tell the stories about the interesting people, places, and events that make up the Archdiocese of St. Louis. We'll also give an update on Catholic news, courtesy of the reporters from the St. Louis Review and Catholic St. Louis Magazine, the official publications of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. So with trust in the Holy Spirit, let's begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Catholic Gateway Podcast. My name is Gabe Jones. Every September 11th anniversary offers an opportunity to pause and reflect upon the bravery of the first responders who risked their own lives to help others on that day, now 15 years ago. On this episode, you'll hear my interview with Deacon Mark Byington, a permanent deacon assigned to St. Joseph Parish in Farmington, Missouri. Mark is a former Dallas police officer and currently a professor at Jefferson College. Although he has retired from active police work, he remains involved in the St. Louis police community through training and education. As you'll hear in the interview, he has helped organize a retreat specifically for first responders at the White House Retreat Center. Mark has a unique perspective on the role of police and offers insight we can all use when it comes to conflict resolution. I hope you enjoy the interview. Deacon, thank you for coming on the Catholic Gateway Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, you were just recently at the, the Blue Mass, right, correct, on, on September 11th? Correct, yes, assisting uh, Archbishop Carlson. It is truly my privilege and my honor to be able to celebrate this Blue Mass with all of you today in our beautiful Cathedral of St. Louis. And to pray with and for all our women and men who have as their life work to protect and to serve, to serve our fellow citizens. And uh, so that was on the 15th anniversary of the terrorist attacks of 9-11. You know, just can you offer some insights on, uh, on this 15th anniversary uh, for somebody like you who's been a police officer, been a first responder, and being at that mass, kind of what it means to have that mass on the 15th anniversary, you know, now that we're, we're so many years removed from those events. Can you just reflect on that a little bit? Yes, I can. Um, one of the big things is, is that this is only our second annual um, Blue Mass, which uh, I, I like saying the annual Blue Mass so that uh, it reminds us that, you know, we will have another one next year. and uh, It's not going away anytime soon, as Bishop Rice had said last year. Um, I think it's important, first and foremost, that it, it just shows uh, how much we care for those who put their lives on the line every day, uh, whether they wear the uniform of an officer or a fireman or an EMT, uh, any of our first responders. And so that's an important uh, point in and of itself, you know, that we have there a chance to give back um, as a sign of respect uh, within our faith community. Um, but having it on 9-11, um, having you know, vivid memories of it and being involved in, in a lot of work after 9-11 to uh, 
bring counterterrorism to the forefront. Um, it, it was a very moving experience that day because uh, many of us um, were working as first responders uh, during that period of time, especially those attending mass. Uh, many of uh, our officials, you could see it. You could see it was a moving experience. You could see the connection um, that it meant, and you saw it also in the people's face afterwards, uh, many people coming up to uh, thank them and uh, thank the rest of us who were uh, both deacons were former uh, police officers. So um, it was a very moving experience to be able to and take a part of it. But spirituality then becomes um, centered uh, when you have such a, a tragic event like that, like 9-11. So it also helped us remember uh, the importance of our faith during that, that difficult time. Um, and that often happens. The first responders um, who deal with it emotionally, you find that they have a very strong connection spiritually to their faith, uh, whatever um, uh, denomination that, that they belong to. Right. And that faith is so important to help ground us, to keep us, um, and this goes for any profession, really, to keep us uh, focused on, on what's important um, so we don't get too too down or, or even too high, depending on the situation. Um, so so I, think, um, I think it's a very, very apt uh, reflection there. So now, it, you, know, it does, yeah. um, you know, 15 years removed now from 9-11 in the, uh, in our communities across across the U.S., we're now facing sort of other issues when it comes to first responders, especially police officers. And there's uh, maybe a little bit of tension uh, in a lot of areas. Um, can you comment on that at all about some of the, you know, the, the increase? Well, in there's, there's a, a growing, what many are calling um, the debate of policing versus law enforcement, as I used to mm -hmm. say in my classroom. But also the understanding of, of the choice between police, uh, policing, community policing, and the militarization of policing, which was the argument coming out of uh, Ferguson and the Department of Justice looking at it. And it became that, that the current issue right now um, to the debate of which direction do we go? Um, do we start to pull away from the uh, modern uh, approach to community policing and move towards the militarization? of policing, which is generally why that term law enforcement is used more often if you look uh, than individuals um, uh, regarding policing. And I think it's very important, especially spiritually, to not remove that because that connection of serving a cause greater than oneself. The faith community, at least for myself and many others, uh, especially in the Catholic faith, it was the understanding of parish and serving even as a, a you know a layperson, you began to make that connection as you transitioned to being a police officer to that serving that community. Well, your first example of that for me was you know as an altar boy and other such approaches that it wasn't uh, confusing or offsetting for me to to you know swear uh, that I would uphold the laws, but also that I would protect and, and serve. So it was very important. But we're seeing that being pulled away as less and less people um, try to uh, hold on to spirituality and dis disconnect their faith from the position that they hold in the, in the public sector. It becomes a danger, and for police officers especially, 
um, you always have to be reminded where your foundation and understanding of service comes from. And if you try to, re, you know, remove that and try to make a separation of that, that uh, you start to fall into what we're now seeing, which a lot of times is that struggle that the only job of a police officer is actually enforcing laws, you know, so making arrests, writing tickets, um, going from 9-11 call, you know, uh, 911 call to a 911 call. Um, it's very hard and it's easy to get caught up that way. And really your faith, um, the importance of chaplains, uh, you know, being part of the departments. I'm always reminding them, even though they may not be talking about the faith themselves, their visible presence is a reminder that the individuals uh, of that connection to their faith. I want to pause my interview with Deacon Mark right here while we're on the subject of police chaplains to play for you part of a short interview I did with Father Mike Bame. Father Bame is the vicar for priests in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, but also serves as a chaplain of the St. Louis County Police and has even served as a volunteer firefighter in Washington, Missouri. So, Father Bame, I wanted to ask you, just in your role as chaplain for uh, with the police, you, you see these men on, on a regular basis and what they go through. Uh, how important is the role of a chaplain in the work that our first responders do on a daily basis? It seems to me that the first, um, the most important thing for chaplains is to be available, accessible, um, to the to the men and women in uniform um, and supportive so if if we're doing anything to help them we are making a difference by being there and by just being available um, and then offering a maybe a supportive ear uh, maybe a supportive word from time to time but it's definitely a ministry of presence so that they know that we're available uh, in case they might need us. There's a, an, any number of pressures, of course, on uh, people in law enforcement, including the job and the demands of the job, but then also with, uh, as, with their demands at home, uh, with family, and trying to keep up with all that can be a real challenge in, um, with that environment. So the more that we can offer them some kind of support, uh, the, the better off they can do their job, and um, and the better off we all are. Have you um, really seen uh, these men and women respond in your in your ministry? I mean, do they? You know, have there been any instances where there's been kind of that, that God moment <laughs> in your ministry where it's yeah. you see that? I think of Ferguson and with the uh, as the protests were going on and the command post was set up. We staff the command post um, a majority of the time with chaplains. And I remember one night as a group of our tactical officers were getting ready to go out, um, one of them asked me to come up, come out to his vehicle uh, and to bless his equipment. Um, and it was just a, a, a neat moment and a moment of where I had the opportunity to really bring a blessing, bring God to that moment um, where he felt supported um, and backed up, you might say, um, and he was very grateful. Deacon Byington, in, in my conversation with him, talks a lot about kind of the interior peace that the first responders really have to have because they are going into high-stress situations. Um, is that something you've seen in just being, like you said, the ministry of presence, kind of being there? Uh, does that provide 
some of that peace for these guys or blessing their equipment? Does that give them that sense of calm as they go into something that's stressful? Those stressful moments take their toll, and, and obviously the uh, um, going into them creates a lot of stress. So I think um, just the fact that they know that, for, for many of them, just the fact that they know that we are there and what we represent or who we represent uh, makes a difference. So I noticed it again um, at Ferguson, or I notice it um, even in precincts, where if you're just walking around, being available, saying a kind word, um, maybe engaging in conversation, that it just brings some sort of a calm that's hard to explain. But I've heard officers express appreciation for it um, and say that our presence makes a difference, though I don't know that anybody really could articulate that. The important thing is just for everybody to pray for our first responders. Um, they do a difficult job and they do a lot of things that most of us wouldn't do but they take that on willingly um, and at great sacrifice and so we owe them our support we owe them our prayer okay now back to deacon mark byington you know your faith and your connection to a faith community um, to me is the example that is always laying in the back of your head so there's a danger when you have that push by individuals or by government to separate yourself when you're in that position from your faith, which is what led you generally to that position of service to begin with, whether it be a police fireman or, uh, or EMT. Um, it usually has that sense of, of being connected to something greater than oneself, you know, and serving. Uh, that's, that's how you overcome the danger of putting your life on the line every day. I don't see how somebody could run into a burning building um, or focus on treating of an injured person while either under fire or under danger uh, of, a, of a building collapsing or the officer, you know, going in under fire without that connection to a greater and higher power. I mean, it's, uh, as they say, you know, there's no atheist in foxholes. Yeah. So. <laughs> and same, same goes for, uh, for a lot of situations that are police and firefighters and paramedics and first responders face. I want to bring up something uh, that uh, Archbishop Carlson said in his homily at the Blue Mass on September 11th. We must never get used to violence and the shedding of innocent blood. We must resist the logic of violence, revenge, and hatred. If in the face of evil we allow ourselves to hate, then we risk becoming what we must deplore. We can say that obviously just in general terms, but is there a specific uh, sort of temptation towards that for someone in, in law enforcement or, or policing um, to, to, like you said, maybe resort more to the militarization side of things versus the, the peacekeeping and the, the community Correct. policing yeah. aspect? If, if one approaches and, and what's in the forefront of their thought is my safety over others, you know, uh, Whatever happens, you know, I'm going to go home alive. And, and uh, a lot of things, there's a tendency for trainers to be saying things like that to people, to uh, you know, younger officers. Um, the danger of it is, is that we always have to keep in the forefront that that I'm there to 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 make peace, to be you know, not just keep you know, peacekeepers, but peacemakers. So I can't bring more violence to it. I have to. It has to be in the forefront of my thought that I'm trying to de-escalate the situation. 
not raise it, not just end it, you know, end the situation. I'm trying to de-escalate it so that no harm comes to anyone. And that has to actually be in the forefront of my thought. So that thought process, and that's what the Archbishop was trying to say, is I always have to remember where violence plays a part and that of where I can control the situation. Even if others see it as out of control, I have to say to myself, I can take control of this situation and I can do so without escalating violence because my sole goal is actually to de-escalate the violence being used, not mm-hmm. to bring, uh, in a sense, a higher use of force. Though that may be the end result, it can't be at the forefront of what I want to do. It may be what I have to do, but if, if it's at the forefront of what I want to do, then it'll automatically go there. And therefore, I actually have to consciously be reminding myself. Otherwise, I play off the energy of everything in the room or in the situation, and it drives me to increase if you've ever got into a heated debate of a situation and it's getting more and more louder and more and more, in a sense, uh, physical, you know, uh, people now standing up as opposed to sitting down or leaning forward. It only takes one individual to recognize what's happening and to pull back and take a breath to realize that they have control in some way, shape, or form to de-escalate yeah. uh, the approach. I don't have to feed that animal. Um, you know, that's what separates us. You know, uh, the dog itself even, you know, has to actually have something to, to snap it out of what's driving it to, to start to increase its violence. You know, the snap or the click or the poke. Like, humans have that self-initiative. We can actually do it on our own. Um, and that's why I think the Archbishop's statement there, uh, when he said it, was just so moving, because he's saying, that, you know, we have to individually keep that in the forefront of our thoughts and our actions. Right. Well, and I think what you touched on is, is very important. We, are, uh, we have this, this will and a, and a rational faculty that separates us from animals and uh, should, should make us uh, strive. Uh, not only, like you said earlier, do we realize and do things because there's a higher power, but we have to recognize that, that God has given us the graces to do good things and act in a certain way, even when the scenario may not lend itself towards that. Uh, and and truthfully, that's where that strong connection with our faith is, where others may not even recognize that that opportunity. By being strongly connected to your faith, you see that opportunity to, in a sense, bring God back into the situation by bringing peace. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus, is, the, whole, the whole sense of that is to be peacemakers. So, but it has to be in the forefront of our thought that we don't put it on the back burner, because if so, then, then the rest of our um, the situation drives us. So it's a chance for us to actually bring, you know, peace to the situation by by holding on to our faith. Um, well, and and that's a great segue into I want, what I wanted to ask you about, which was this upcoming retreat. The second year you're doing um, the, the St. Michael's Retreat, correct? Is that, that's the name of it? Correct, yeah. It's, uh, well, we, it slowly became the first responders retreat because uh, some of our firemen brothers uh, were absolutely correct. St. Michael's is the patron saint of police officers, and, you know, we keep forgetting, you know, the patron saint of, of firemen. So, yeah, yeah, it's um, bigger, than, yeah. bigger than just police officers. It's bigger right? than just police officers. Um, so, you know, we... Uh, 
it's labeled uh, first responders retreat for anybody who is interested okay. uh, in attending. So, yeah, where's it? And can you tell us where where it takes place? Yes, uh, the uh, dates it is, and it is held at the White House uh, Jesuit Retreat uh, location, which is off of uh, Christopher Drive. Um, they can uh, find uh, the information pertaining to it at uh, was the whretreat.org and click on first responder retreat and they'll have information. It's this coming November. It's the first week of November. It, uh, it's, uh, we find it really nice to have it, you know, All Saints and All Souls Day uh, so we can celebrate uh, those that have come before us and, and remember the saints that guide us. And so we have it during that, the, those, those time periods. Uh, for police officers, uh, they actually receive uh, continuing education for attending and and uh, the other first responders uh, can receive the certificates as well so that their continuing ed related to their jobs um, can be covered, which is a huge step. But it's uh, located along the Mississippi Bluffs, as if any people are not familiar with it. It's a beautiful setting, and it just allows us to reconnect, again, to a community, but a community of faith, um, even though it's non-denominational. But it provides the spirituality that actually connects us no matter what our our practicing faith is, and those who do not uh, have a faith community to turn to, it provides an opportunity to actually establish one um, among first responders. And that's every you know first of uh, year. Hopefully, um, we're always looking for people to help. Uh, you know, make sure it keeps going. Um, but it's because uh, it's so unique uh, to the country. But it's held the first of, of November every year, and uh, we hope to keep it going. Well, Deacon, it sounds like a great ministry uh, that, that you're doing, um, both as a, as a deacon and then also this retreat. So I hope you keep up the good work. Thank you for coming on the Catholic Gateway podcast today. Oh, and thank you for having me. Words like duty and honor, words of integrity and service, would be difficult to understand if you did not walk among us. If the Lord did not walk among you, you who are called to protect and to serve. In celebrating this Blue Mass today, we celebrate it and prayerfully pray for all of you, our police, our firefighters, our emergency personnel, and we thank you. We thank you for your commitment to the common good. We thank God for you, and we thank you for all of your sacrifice. We honor you because you are heroes. For you are heroes not because you did not feel fear at one time or another, but because you did not let fear overwhelm you or hatred blind you so as to keep you from helping your neighbor. You are heroes because when duty calls, you show up. So on this next segment of the Catholic Gateway podcast, we are going to talk to Stephen Kempf, now uh, Assistant Director of Publications for the Archdiocese of St. Louis uh, with the St. Louis Review and Catholic St. Louis Magazine. And um, we're going to talk to him about uh, a different kind of service than what we talked about in the first segment of this podcast. And uh, he's going to talk about the Jubilarian uh, insert in the current edition of the St. Louis Review and uh, some of the unique stories that, uh, that have come out of that. So, Stephen, 
first time in the uh, the Catholic Gateway Podcast studio here. This is great. Nice digs. <laughs> yeah, most of the time we catch up with Stephen just in his office real quick to try to get a quick rundown of what they're working on in the review. But uh, here we are officially. We're making this real. Well, thanks for having me, Gabe. First of all, um, give us some of the, the numbers for this Jubilarian insert. How many people, uh, years of service, so on and so forth. Sure. Well, you've probably heard me talking about the Jubilarian section for a few weeks now because it's something that we have we started work on in April. And so we, we try and get in touch with all the orders that have had or still have men and women religious in our, serving in our archdiocese. And it turns out this year that we have 250 priests and men and women religious celebrating a Jubilee. And we define that as the 25th anniversary, the 50th, the 60th, 65th, 70th, and above. Because pretty much once you've reached 70th anniversary of entrance into your order or, you know, profession, you're, you're, you've done a lot for the church. Yeah. And we want you to need make to be sure recognized to, every exactly, year. Exactly. Every year, right. every year. So 250 uh, jubilarians this year. And adding it all up real quick, we got 14,100 years of service to the church. Wow. Not all of that in St. Louis. I didn't get those numbers, but uh, just in service to the church in general with their, with their order. Wow. So, but all these people do have a connection. Maybe served here or were, grew, grew up here or something. Yes, there were, they were either born in, Saint, in, the, in the archdiocese or they served here for a significant amount of time, usually at the minimum five to ten years. A lot of them have served their entire life here. And wow. some of them were just here for five, 10, 15 years in, you know, in the 50s and 60s teaching at, at certain schools. But all of them have served. They have some connection to the archdiocese. Uh, you were saying before we started here that uh, you have a personal connection with a couple of these, right? Yes. Uh, I went to DeSmet Jesuit High School in, uh, in Creve Corps. And I actually was taught by three of the Jesuits that are celebrating Jubilees. And two of, or one of the school sisters of Notre Dame also taught me. So I think that a lot of people are in a similar situation to me where they love being going through the Jubilarian section. Like, oh, yeah, that's Sister So-and-so from St. So-and-so school. And, you know, just remembering, you know, like, what is she up to now? Okay, now here's the test, though. You can't mention that you had these Jubilarians as teachers and not say their names. So you got to give them a shout out. Yes. Sister Blanche, uh, you know, she she taught English, English and uh and, and social studies, and then Father Durso, and then Father Boskin, and Father Snyders, all Jesuits that taught at this met. I'm impressed. Yeah. Yeah. With the years, sometimes the teacher's names kind of I, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I'm a little concerned that I'm going to get in trouble for, uh, you know, Father Durso is going to be like, I never taught that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, one other interesting aspect of this is, is that all these 250 mementos or whatever, the little rundowns, the bios, they come to you guys. Uh, and the review, so you have to go through and read all 250 of these, right? Absolutely. It's, it, I mean, it's a, it's certainly a chore because you know a lot of times we have different, uh, different formats and we want to make sure everything's the same style. But really, it's, it's kind of a, a labor of love because I really enjoy reading about all of these, these men and women who have given their lives in service. And so, just you know, I may not have known who the teacher was at St. Mark's School in Afton or wherever, but. In knowing that she was there for 15 or 20 years, it just it just helps me know a little bit more about them. And we also ask uh, everybody to include what they're doing now, some of the things that they that they enjoy doing. And as we're getting toward the men and women who have celebrated, you know, 70th and 80th years, you know, a lot of times they're just in a nursing home, but still, it's they they love praying. They love mm -hmm. praying and being there with their sisters. And so you really kind of get get a feel for the life of service that they live. 
And that's really a neat thing about this and about the Archdiocese, really the Catholic Church in general, is that there is a community. So it's it's a nice uh, nice way to really feel connected there. So Stephen, as you're going through these 250 profiles, there's got to be some amazing stories of what, how these people have served or things they've done. Is there anything that really stuck out to you as you were going through these? Well, certainly. I mean, there's there's a lot of interesting stories, but one that grabbed my attention right away was Sister Jean Marie Greffenkamp. She's a school sister of Notre Dame, and she actually received a lung transplant. And now she spends her life mentoring people who are on the transplant list. And I just think that's a great way of receiving something and then giving back. Um, she, one of her, the quotes is that she says, the waiting is a true test of faith and love. And I really kind of got to know how she views her service, you know, in that quote. And so a lot of different, a, a lot of the other men and women included little quotes that just, you know, kind of give a little bit of insight into their life. Now, you mentioned something earlier about praying and, and uh, how that's important. Um, I guess part of the reason why you guys do this is that the rest of us in Catholic St. Louis can p- pick this up and pray for these people who have been, we always pray for vocations. We don't always often think of the people who are already in their vocation and following that, that path. Um, so that's got to be one reason, one really a special reason that you guys do this, right? Cer- certainly. We had one la- in the jubilarian section last year, and she included that, you know, she was a teacher for 60-something years, and she included in a, in, a, in a notebook the name of every single student that she had taught, and then as she was doing her knitting, she would pray for each one of those people individually. And I just thought that was a great thing. And the Jubilarian sec- uh, section can be very similar to that. You know, I, I think it would be a great idea. There's 250 uh, men and women here. If we took one of those or, you know, maybe five of those a week and spent, you know, a, a, that week praying for those mm-hmm. attentions, I think that would be a tremendous thing. Because as you said, we don't often think about the men and women who have served us so much, especially once they're out of the schools and not, right. you know, a little, little less visible in that presence. And in this episode of the podcast, we were just talking earlier uh, about service in the sense of like first responders and police, firefighters, so on and so forth. Uh, but really, as Catholics, um, this life of service as a teacher in a, in a religious order or as a priest or any other number of ways, that's just as important really to us and something we really should be thankful for. And, and um, a lot of times we, we give you know, first responders a, a lot of attention, which is, is their due. They really deserve that. Um, but we do kind of let these jubilarians and, and people like them kind of fly under the radar sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's great that you guys are doing this. Yeah. Now, if somebody wants to get in, say, um, you know, uh, somebody is listening to this podcast and says, oh, my, my aunt or my uncle was a, uh, you know, a Jesuit for, for 55 years. How does he get in this uh, next year or year after or whatever, um, you know, sometime in the future? Do they reach out to you or how's that process go? We work really closely with the Office of Consecrated Life because they have those relationships with the orders and with the communications uh, people in those orders. So generally we start working, like I said, in April or thereabouts, and we send out communications to them saying, hey, we're going to do our jubilarian section. It's going to be around this time, but we need you to start submitting profiles. And we really ask for the orders to do a lot of that a lot of that prep work because they know these sisters and we don't always know them. We may know them, you know, we may have that random connection here and there with them, but the, the communicators and the office of consecrated life really work together closely to figure out how many jubilarians we're going to have. 
and really work to encourage them to start filling out those profiles. So the Office of Consecrated Life would certainly be able to help you. We, we have our submission form basically open from about April to June, and then about that time we start reading them, and then you know there's a, the occasional one. We got one from the, um, the Adrian Dominicans who called as I was actually producing this paper, and they're like, oh, we had, a, we had an oversight. We need to add one more. <laughs> okay. So it was, a, it was a little... So it does happen. It, does, it certainly does happen, Yeah, yes. when you're dealing with 250 or Ex- more. That, exactly, yeah, yes. For sure. Well, Stephen, thank you for all the work you've put into this and, and the rest of the review staff. Uh, what's the name of this uh, Jubilarian edition for people who are looking for it, and, and what edition of the paper is it in? Uh, it is in the uh, September 26th through October 2nd paper, and the headline is Call to Serve. It's a 40-page special section on the inside. And online, right? Find and online. online. You can find it at www.stlouisreview.com slash jubilarians-celebrating. Great. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for uh, venturing down here into the Catholic Gateway Podcast studio and being on the podcast. No problem. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catholic Gateway Podcast. We always welcome story tips and ideas for the podcast. Just send them to communications at archstl.org. That's communications at archstl.org. Make sure to connect with us on social media to stay up to date with what's going on here in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for Archdiocese of St. Louis. We're on Twitter, at archstl is our handle there, at archstl. And we're on Instagram, at Catholic STL. And you should follow the St. Louis Review. They're on Facebook, also Twitter and Instagram under the handle at St. Louis Review. That's ST Lewis Review. The Catholic Gateway Podcast is a production of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. I'm your host, Gabe Jones. We hope you'll join us again next time here in the Gateway to the West, the Rome of the West, Catholic St. Louis. Catholic St. Louis.